Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Um, but I had an interesting conversation with my kids this month, and I have very interesting existential you know, teaching moments with my kids. You know how I love to lecture. And, you know, give teachable moments, especially in our greenish table. If you guys are not following that, follow it, you know. That's where we eat, where we have conversations, life change, basically, you know, heaven on earth happens in the greenish table. So we were on the greenish table, and um, let's put this picture up there. And we we're having a conversation about this topic, particularly. And just, you know, Nathan was talking about, you know, nerds and how they're not cool, and how they get picked on. And then Josh comes in in the kitchen and says, yeah, you know, <clears throat> I saw some nerds at school. And it, they kind of smell funny, and I don't like them. They're, they're weird. And, and then Nathan looks at Josh with disgust. Says this is I'm against bullying, Josh. In his eye, I mean, this is not communicated, um, you know. And he's like, that's so judgmental, Josh. Oh, you're so young, you know. Why are you such? A... And then Josh goes, but they taste bad, right? So they're talking about two different things. Let's go there. So so Nathan was talking about this type of nerd. Josh was talking about these, this type of nerds. And so they're two talking about two different, completely separate things. And so Nathan was actually the judgmental one because Josh was actually talking about the candy. <laughs> they look, smell funny. I saw some of them, but they taste funny. And then Nathan had to catch himself. Oh, I'm the judgmental one. And I, I jumped to conclusions. And so, so when we come to the layer of joy, joy, I don't want us to get confused about what we're talking about. The etymology is critical. I'm not talking about pleasure or happiness. I'm talking about joy. Now, happiness and pleasure are distant cousins. They're cute compared to joy. They're somehow related, but just like, you know, the, you, you, you know, you have cousins, but not the cool kind. Those are the cousins we're talking about. The ones you're not hanging out with, you know, all the time. The distance one. And, and, and sometimes uh, what happens is when we talk about joy, the topic of joy, and the, and the critical theme of joy, a lot of people confuse pleasure with joy. And that's not what Adventus is about. The joy God brings is vastly different than pleasure or happiness. Joy is eternal. There's an echo in the human heart viscerally 
for this desire. It's hard to even pinpoint. It's elusive and very difficult to describe because we only experience it momentarily because it's, an, it's an, almost like an echo or a glimpse of eternity of what life is supposed to be like, what I'm supposed to really feel like, but I could only experience it momentarily. And it's a signpost to something rather than something I can possess. And this is what Lewis says. Lewis says in Surprised by Joy, joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from an aesthetic pleasure. It must have a what? Read that with me. A stab. The pang. The inconsolable longing. Lewis says that joy is a desire every single human being and every soul longs for that it hurts. It's a longing for something more. A longing of something I once had, longing of something I'm looking forward to, longing of something that can be. But in the weight of glory, Lewis tackles that in pretty nuanced ways where joy is critically the central pursuit of the human heart. But yet, we're frustrated because every time we try to attain it, it eludes us. And there's critical reasons for why that is and critical to understand why in our pursuit of joy itself. So let's talk about that today. Let's talk about what is joy? How is it different from its cousins? And what is it ultimately pointing to, that desire? And I want to answer those questions. So let's go to this passage. So here, the, the writer of Hebrews <clears throat> says, therefore, now in chapter 11 of Hebrews, for those of you that read this epistle, know that the author is making a case that all these men and women of faith, Moses and Abraham and Isaiah and many others, were looking for something before even Jesus. And they did it by faith. Like Moses gave up the pleasures of Egypt, the text says in chapter 11, for something better. Now, they don't define what the better is, but they say for something better. This is the framework of joy. You're willing to suffer to attain it or to understand it and pursue it. So therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he, what? And they're the cross. So here you go, you catch that, for the joy set before him. So 
The writer of Hebrews distinctively and explicitly uses the word for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy, joy itself by nature does not try to escape suffering. Suffering usually is the path to joy. Tell someone next to you, suffering is the path to joy. They're like, oh, this sucks. What kind of message is this on Christmas? I thought Christmas is all about joy of presents, joy of hot chocolate, joy of pretzels. Well, that may be chocolate-covered pretzels. I mean, joy of this. I mean, so, so the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, the example of the greatest joy, accepted and embraced the greatest suffering because of the joy set before him. He said that he endured the cross storning his shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. So here is the interplay between sin, sin that so easily entangles, and what is sin supposed to be synonymous with, usually? Pleasure. Mm. Tell someone, pleasure. Yeah, sin, the interplay between sin and joy, he's the mother, the, you know, uh, clarity, trying to show you that contrast is the mother of clarity here, and the contrast between pleasure and joy. So what we think will bring us joy in seduction, in alchemy, in ecstasy, in our pursuit of lust, whatever that might be, is in comparison with the joy set before Jesus. Right? So the interplay between pleasure and joy. So let's, let's look at Hebrews 11 here, just what they say about Moses in the previous chapter. Let's move down here. So this is what uh, the writer of Hebrews says, one chapter before, when he makes the case, therefore, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. He says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Tell someone next to you, all sin is fleeting. You're like, really? I don't know. It looks pretty nice sometimes. And can you imagine the pleasures of a feral son? If you read that original language carefully, they're talking about all kinds of pleasures of the world offered Moses more than we could ever imagine. But he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see that? Moses, like Jesus, endured servitude and slavery rather than enjoy the convenience of pleasure. 
well, why would we do that? Right? I mean, we live in a culture where modern convenience is, is everything. I mean, I got an American Express Platinum card recently, and there are people that work at American Express at our church, so I'm marketing it for you. You know, and, um, and one of the benefits of the Platinum card is that you get $50 at, at Saks, the store, which is ridiculously expensive, like the cheapest thing, like a jacket was $2,000, and I thought it was 200 and I put it in the cart. And then I said, $2,000, i am like, no, 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 you know? And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to use this $50 credit, you know, every six months. And so I go, hey, babe, do you want something? She goes, sure. And she goes, well, I'm going to go to bed. So because she went to bed, I was like, well, I'm going to look anyway. Start looking. Ended up getting four things for myself <laughs> instead of my wife. And I was like, this stuff is nice. Cashmere? Hmm. I got 10% discount, $50 credit. I'm good, right? Pleasure, modern conveniences. And this is, this is not even sinful. We're just talking about like, you know, lattes, you know, cashmere sweaters, the modern conveniences. This, this, but that's not joy. This is not what this text is describing at all. It's not even conceivable that Jesus would go to the cross to experience the greatest suffering or Moses give up the greatest pleasures for that. This is not what we're talking about. I mean, look at our culture carefully. In the advent of Tinder, where pleasure-seeking is everything. The greatest threat to prostitution in the United States, illegal, is casual sex. Tinder has destroyed that industry. So in the advent of Tinder, where people are seeking pleasure, are people happier because sex is available? No. Studies have shown that there are no women in Tinder that are satisfied in their sex life. There are articles done in Vanity Fair, New York Times, New York Times Magazine, everywhere. There is no pleasure. In fact, they did a qualitative study and studied women and asked them what Tinder culture is like. They go, what pleasure? So then why are people seeking Tinder or one-night stands in this modern age? Because it's better than what? Loneliness. It's better than loneliness. I mean, in the age of Tinder, what better news is there than the invitation of joy? There's not one person that you can speak to after a one-night stand where they feel joy. So pleasure and the temptation, the alchemy of pleasure, always leads to what? Emptiness. And so the joy that God is talking about here is what? 
What is the difference between pleasure and joy? Well, let's look. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too what? Strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drinking sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's what they sell us in Hollywood. The actors that play in the notebook and every romance movie or the Fifty Shades of Grey all have dysfunctional relationships and they're divorced like four or five times. There's no joy in acting or pretending. And in the church, a lot of us think our desires are too strong. Oh, what I want secretly, the dark part of me, it's too strong. And God's like, he looks at your life and goes, you think desiring sex or how to do sex in different ways? Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. And you think that God looks at you and he looks at your secret desires for whatever orgasmic pleasure it is, drugs, sex, whatever it is, or different kinds of sex, and that that's new, you, you're seriously mistaken. God thinks your desires are too weak and too cheap. So the whole idea of joy, why it's different from pleasure, is the substance behind what you want. So you're, you're too easily satisfied. God says, I want to give you more. I want to give you better. Trust me. That's the pursuit of joy. That's why Jesus endured the cross. Because what he would receive, what Moses would receive, was much greater than any pleasure or modern conveniences. That's what the gospel is unpacking in Jesus. And that's the invitation we're talking about. So we have to become what? An invitation of joy is an invitation. It would become deeper people, not more shallow. And that's what joy looks like. The invitation of joy looks like. Becoming more substantial people to be able to receive what is better. Sometimes uh, when I'm in the car, you know, you guys know I have a thing with Diet Coke, right? And Coke Zero. And like fountain drinks, I have a thing, you know, just I, had, I have a problem. And I usually have old soda in the car. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but sometimes you're driving, and that's the only thing there. Three days old, four days old, you know? Are you judging me? You do the same thing in your life. You're judging me. You already went to use my illustration already in your, your own life. But, I mean, come on. I'm like, there, I'm thirsty. 
five miles down, there's a, I could get something fresh. But it's there. <laughs> so it's there. What are going to do? It's there. And I know I've done it a thousand times. I know how it's going to taste. But I do it anyway. I drink it. Oh. One time I found garbage in there. Make sure you look in before you do that, okay? But that's it. It's a prophetic picture of what we do in our lives. When is God going to give me this, 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 and this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what's available. We do it because it's available. There's TED Talks, psychologists talking about the de degradation, quality experience of sexual lives in married and, and both non-married couples because people are addicted to fleeting pleasure and instant gratification rather than intimacy. Because we take anything that's available. That's what Tinder is, right? Who's available? That's the culture we live in. And then we quantify scientifically why so many people are depressed. And then we go, wow, that's a lot of people. Why do you think? So we're addicted to what's available. And what happens when you give in to what's available that's not the best and you settle? Despair. I look at myself in the car. I'm never going to tell this story, but I always do. <laughs> Shameful. Right? Too weak. So you can't defeat temptation with less desire. The only way you can defeat addiction is with greater. It has to transcend what is less. And that's the problem in the church. People like, oh, I struggle with this temptation, this temptation, this girl, that girl. <laughs> I mean, I remember talking to, you know, just college students that's preparing to go to ministry. And I'm like, well, what's, you know, what about this girl? You know, well, you know, who I really want to date is Pamela Anderson. Well, this is like 20 years ago, sorry. <laughs> my <laughs> illustration is outdated. You know, and what about, you know, this girl's great. You know, she loves the Lord. Well, she ain't no Pamela Anderson. So do I, do I marry for chemistry or do I marry for love? And I was like, you're an idiot. You know why? Because I understand that this is immaturity. What, he lacks the substance to be able to carry a real relationship where there can be intimacy. And I said, okay, why don't you sit down? Let's talk about this. How much pornography are you watching? What are you talking about? No, none. Okay, okay. So, so our fashion culture, our internet, more than 90% of it is used for pornography. And so people keep picking and choosing what's cheap and available, and they can never choose what's best. The pursuit of Avant is having the, God is giving us in Jesus the dignity 
to help us intensify the desire that we were made for, for the best that he has to offer our lives. That is the pursuit of joy. That's the invitation of joy. Amen? So, everybody in this room, you go, well, you don't know, you know, Dr. Sammy, if I told you my desires, you would be, don't worry about it. Nothing is new under the sun. There's nothing you can do that can shock God. God is shocked and appalled by how cheaply we are satisfied and he wants to, when he wants to give us joy, which will require some suffering. <laughs> I mean, I can't count in the number of my hands when men have come to me and said, I thought our relationship, when I got this girl, my life was going to be on cloud nine forever. It was going to be cloud nine. But now I realize she might be crazy. <laughs> no, this is not like one time, twice. This is like 25 times. So you thought that you're going to be on this honeymoon phase forever. It felt so good for the first six months. Yeah, that's all it is. See, that was an illusion where you guys lied to each other about who you are. <laughs> where you're, like, you're, maybe you're in a movie or a novel, but this is real life. <laughs> in real life, people pee and poop and snore. That's a big problem in couples' life sometimes. And, you know, there are many other things. But any time you want more in a relationship, you're going to have to fight. And people go, is fighting normal? Oh, yeah. I, in fact, in premarital and postmarital, I go, if you, haven't, if you haven't fought, like, haven't broken up at least five times or 50, to 50, you probably shouldn't get married because you probably will get divorced because you're still in a romantic fallacy about what this is. If you want, yeah, if you just want the security of having someone, fine. Oh, you know, I have this person. But if you want real intimacy, when you get to the real heart and soul stuff, your fears are going to have to be exposed. And you're going to have to see the worst and best of each other. In every relationship, that's what has to happen. You know, when, when the clergyman says better or worse, he's not kidding. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> All right, so what's the, what's the difference between love and joy? I mean, joy and pleasure. Okay. Let's look at here. Read it with me. Pleasure is what? Quick fix. Joy is what? Required taste. Pleasure is quick fix, but joy is acquired taste. This is why people who are immature, just like even in physical things, like, like my, my youngest son, Josh, he's the most immature person in our church. Well, maybe not. I mean, I know some of you know. I mean, right, his taste has not evolved. It's really childish. Like, if we're having steak, he'll want hamburgers. 
And I look at him with disgust. You must be more like your mom. Because, you know, Nathan is eating the medium rare. He's like, that's too rare. It's supposed to be like that. The ju- you know, the marinade, you know, being ma- the, the juices that we cook, it's supposed to be there. No, it's, that's gross. And it's, it's trying to explain the joys of eating medium red steak to Josh. It's like talking to an ant. <laughs> I'm serious. Sometimes I thought while he was growing up as a child that my dog was smarter. So dense, but, but, you know, but honestly to tell you, you know, Hebrews is t- tackling this layer right here. That's all of us. God is trying to speak to us about orgasmic joy. Joy we can't even imagine, but we're so dull in our mind, in our hearts. We've been so cheapened by processed things and what is available quick fix. It alleviates the hunger for a while. And that's our life. So pleasure is quick fix, but joy is acquired taste. So you see, today I want to ask you the question, where in your life today are you looking for just quick fixes? Or do you want what is substantial? What God has to offer you? What is the best? Why don't you ask that to yourself? And I pray the Spirit of God would bring that to your life today. Let's move down. So, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter, of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, sorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, how did Jesus overcome then such opposition? And how did he endure the cross? And there's something that thing we missed. What was set before him then? What does the cross represent? It represents death and pain and suffering. And then there's another interplay here between death and life. When it talks about the what? After he overcame the cross, endured, and the shame of the cross, he what? Sat down at the right hand of where? Of the throne of God. So, the author of Hebrews is making a contrast between the cross and what? Heaven. The suffering of the cross and the pleasures and the joys of heaven. So what did Jesus look to? What was he looking forward to? Heaven. And I know heaven for a lot of us is like, what is that? Do we like worship every day? That's what I used to think heaven was because a lot of pastors used to tell me when I was growing up, yeah, heaven's going to be like a big worship service every day. I'm like, please send me to hell. <laughs> because like, I remember when we used to go to a retreat, they would have like, you know, like 6 a.m. worship service. 
and then 12 o'clock worship service, 5 o'clock worship service, and then morning prayer. I was like, that's heaven? <laughs> it's like, that can't be heaven. That's more like hell, right? So heaven is this abstraction that no one seems to understand. Are we going like, to sing? Are there angels? And that's exactly the problem. We can't define heaven because none of us are from there. But in Advent, what we see is a signpost of heaven, someone who is from heaven, someone that comes from heaven, someone that tasted heaven and Jesus. So in a way, you see heaven revealed in Jesus. So how do you endure the cross? He thought of home. His desire for what he knew was so much greater than the suffering he would endure. He was looking for home. And everyone in this room have, ex- have experienced heaven. You're like, really? Yeah. It might be momentarily, it might be transient, and, and you might experience it once in a while. But all of us have heard the voice of heaven echoing from eternity in our lives. You know, often I told, I told many of you while speaking in private that the ultimate decision of why I married my wife is what? What, what do I say? She felt like, you don't know? You're not paying attention? <laughs> She felt like home. Well, I mean, what does that even mean, she felt like home? Did I smell food around her? <laughs> Did she smell like, you know, like my mom's food, kimchi jjigae or something? I mean, like, what does that even mean, that she felt like home? Everyone has a different image of home. But in the end of the day, heaven for Jesus was home. And that place is how he endured the greatest suffering known to man ever. Because the pleasure is so great. You know, my wife and I talk about this. And we're getting older now, so we're contemplating about death life insurance policies, and you know, you're like, oh, this is depressing. And then we talked about, well, what would our, uh, the end of our life be like, right? Like we've been to Europe together, we've been to all the islands, we've traveled the world, of, you know, furthest to South Africa, seen beautiful mountains and lagoons and beaches and all of that. And then my wife says this week or last week, I don't remember, I'm getting older, so, you know, um, she said, you know what's going to be funny? You know, when, we're, when we're like 75, 80, we've gone to all these places in the world. And we're going to look back and say, the best time of our lives ever was walking the park of Staten Island every night with our dog together. And she said that. And I said, What? When she said it, I knew in my heart 
It was true. It was going to be, it's like I saw the future. And I go, what is the point of spending money on these vacations if this is going to be the best thing ever? Why? Why is that? Why, what? Because pleasure-seeking and experiencing new things are great. But joy is a perspective. It's being with the one you love unconditionally. It's being in that place with that person that matters. And heaven is just a place. But why it's heaven is because someone is there. For Jesus, it was God. It was his Father. Today, folks, I want you to pray for this invitation and receive this invitation of what joy could look like in your life with God in you, together, fully committed. Because joy is powerful. It helped Moses overcome everything. Jesus overcome everything. And me too. It helped me overcome all the difficult parts of my life with my wife. So secondly, I'm going to read this and we'll close. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that what? I was made for another world. And that's true. We're going to get thirsty again. The hedonic adaptation, like I talked about, is going to bring us to that baseline again. Ultimately, the only thing that will resolve that thirst, that desire, is not in this world. And that's the glimpse of joy that we're talking about. And one of the things I want to pray, so let's read this for you today as we close, is that this joy is this glimpse. What I want to pray for today is I want you to experience the glimpse of joy echoing from heaven, echoing from eternity. So read it with me. Joy is what? A glimpse of another world commonly known as what? Heaven. Now, I'm sorry to say this. All your problems won't ever resolve on earth. Sorry, that's depress it's depressing, but it is true. All the questions we have won't be answered here. But it will in heaven. What we're experiencing in these moments are glimpses of heaven. The, the voice of God. And this Christmas, we need to hear that voice more than ever before. Amen? Let's stand. I want to pray today as, as you ask the Lord, will the Holy Spirit just remind you of times in your life where you experience real joy? Or 
where something was really substantial. Not fleeting, but where you saw a glimpse of heaven. Where you heard the voice of God. Where you felt the love of God through the touch of someone you love. An encouraging voice, an arm around the shoulder. Where you saw beauty in the music you heard, or the landscape you were watching, or the rivers or oceans around the horizon. Beautiful things that you experienced. That joy is a signpost in this dark and depressing world of the age to come. And the proof of that place is Jesus. Father, I want to pray today as we close that we would ask you to make us and expand our capacity for joy in our lives so we don't end up choosing what is just available. we experience glimpses of heaven in our lives in relationships that you'll bring us to and lead us to in in experiences in our callings in, in healing the world and speaking truth even for a moment or two we would experience that joy. And that joy one day, however faint it is, will find its culmination in your presence in heaven. Will you bow our heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, Amen. Go in peace. Hey everyone, we just have some community news for you as we end our podcast today. We want to invite you to join us for our Sunday service. We meet at the AMC Lowe's Theater at 19th and Broadway in Manhattan at 12 noon, and we'd love to see you guys there. We also have a prayer text hotline where you can send your prayer requests. 
It's available at 5397-PRAYER and at prayer at 180church.tv. In the midst of life, if you need prayer, our team is available to lift you up in your struggles, and we're always there for you. You can check out our Bible reading group online at 180brg.tumblr.com and on Instagram as well at 180brg. And it's a great resource for being grounded in God's Word and really plugging God's Word into our daily lives. You can also find us online through our Instagram page at 180church and our church website at 180church.tv. And lastly, if you'd like to make an offering, you can do so electronically at our website at 180church.tv. 